As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Each year at Stonehenge, as the seasons are changing, that's the equinox and the solstices, there is gatherings of different groups and organizations. Uh, a lot of ceremony, and for many people, uh, if you go there for a first time, you'll see what is now considered present-day Druids. These are people wearing white hoods and capes. They are dressed uh, with crosses and other ceremonial paraphernalia, and they are giving thanks to the seasonal changes and uh, what is to be expected as the year continues. Today, we're going to talk about the Druids, who they were, their background, why Julius Caesar wrote in his documents with disdain for the Druids, and how they appear to be descendants from a very, very ancient people of unknown origin. Later, Jindeo takes us to Algeria and the discovery of a shamanic woman uh, painted on a wall. This is a very, very large painting. And we don't know who the people were that created this painting, but she is elegant. She's over two feet tall, and she is providing us with a message about the ancient past. All this in the news with Bruce Fenton on Earth Ancients. For Saturday, February 13th, 2021, this is Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. Well, there you are. How are you? This is Cliff, your host of Earth Ancients, and uh, welcome to the program. I hope you're doing well this week. Lots of attention to space this week and uh, throughout February. 
Strangely enough, there's three countries that are sending orbiters, rovers, and heavy equipment to the planet Mars. This is a very strange situation. Uh, later in the month, we will have Richard Hoagland on the program to talk about his impression of why China, the Arabs, the United States have sent rovers to Mars at approximately the same time. Now, we don't know, or at least I haven't discovered a reason why they would go at the same time. Perhaps there are favorable gravitational conditions on the planet Mars. Perhaps there's a better way to get there uh, without certain problems uh, arriving to the planet Mars. But why they are converging around the same time is a real question. And uh, this is something that uh, is a question for a lot of people, uh, myself included. But Mars has been a a question of mine for years, as you know, if you've been listening. Uh, I believe Mars is the planet that has evidence of a lost race, a, a dead civilization, We know that Graham Hancock and many others have written extensively about Mars, and there is a lot of oddness there. Uh, This week, I posted an example of a satellite image of a ruin on Earth, and I compared it to a ruin in the uh, Atlantis chaos region of Mars, side by side. And for the most part, No one could uh, distinguish between the ruins in this area of Atlantis chaos, Mars, and the region, uh, a a forgotten region of Iraq. That is uh, an image from the Landstat satellite array on our uh, from our planet. So uh, people were not able to distinguish. Uh, I've had a couple of different archaeologists review the slides, uh, the images from Mars uh, in this region. And they say, and they're, they are uh, startled when I tell them this is, a, this is an image of Mars. So this, what is happening now on the planet Mars is a great deal of question. So here we are, number one. Let's talk about these three um, missions. The first mission is an Arab interplanetary mission, Emirate Mars mission is called. It was launched July 2020, and it's the new, it's the Hope Probe. It's a satellite designed to analyze the atmosphere of Mars, and uh, it looks like from the image they also have a camera on board. Now, this is going to prove very, very interesting when they start imaging the uh, surface of the planet. The next country is the Chinese. They launched their mission uh, July of uh, the 23rd last year, 2020, and it is the T11 orbiter. But on in this situation, they have one of their sophisticated rovers attached, and they're going to try to land a rover in the next, I believe, 10 days. They're currently orbiting Mars. And, uh, you know, it's funny because Currently, the Chinese have a rover on the dark side of Moon, and they are taking some fabulous photographs. So we can expect quite a bit from any kind of rover that they send back images from. And I'm fascinated because rover technology is extremely expensive. And we know this because uh, the third mission 
from NASA uh, is landing this week, and this is the new Land Rover Perseverance. It's a $2 billion rover uh, designed to inspect microbes. (laughs) $2 billion to inspect microbes. So here we got three different programs, hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars expended uh, with each program, all converging at the same time uh, to land, if not land, uh, to survey Mars. And uh, I got to tell you, I am uh, fascinated. Now, in the documents that the Chinese have uh, submitted, their plans uh, are to prepare for a manned mission. Now, we know NASA has it in their plan to uh, get to Mars with a manned mission in the next few years. And this will be Elon Musk's group, SpaceX, uh, which is planning to begin tests of their heavy rockets uh, very, very soon. They've already started with one phase of the rockets, but they're going to be continuing this in the next few weeks to months. So very odd that we have this many programs being sent to Mars and uh, for the reasons that <laughs> uh, it's anyone's guess. Now, we'll definitely drill in with Richard Hoagland to find out what he believes. And remember, Richard's a Mars anomalist. He wrote the book Monuments on Mars and uh, Dark Mission, the story of NASA. He believes there's two factions. He believes that there's a public-facing uh, faction that gives us the uh, story that they're looking for uh, ancient geology, biology, and uh, testing and, and searching for water. And then there's another group that actually understands and has verified uh, evidence of ruins. And we see this quite a bit uh, with a lot of the um, images that are coming back to us from different specialists who are able to manipulate the uh, footage that comes back from uh, any of the NASA uh, JPL uh, equipment or rovers. So very, very strange. Uh, I actually find that I will probably extend my questioning to Dr. A.V. Loeb, our guest next week, uh, regarding his belief of uh, why they would uh, send three missions uh, to Mars around the same time. But this brings up the question of of extraterrestrials, off-world beings. Now, remember, uh, the focus of our interview with Dr. Loeb next week will be this scout ship, this ET scout ship that he's identified from another quadrant of our universe that came into our uh, cosmos. He tracked it as it came across close to Earth. He noticed that it had changed its trajectory which means it's uh, guided by uh, some form of consciousness. Uh, We don't know if it's a robot or not, but uh, he writes in his book, Extraterrestrial, that he believes it's a scout ship. So we'll know more about that as he uh, describes what he discovered, what he has identified as an alien ship that came into our cosmos. So this opens the door in many, many ways, uh, expands our awareness that we are not the only inhabited planet in our solar system. We probably have a number of neighboring planets 
uh, either at our evolutionary scale or greater. And obviously, if they're if they're if they're at our uh, level of evolution, they're just beginning to send rockets out and um, perhaps beginning to consider colonization. But you know, it's 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 strange in many ways uh, to have this happening at this time. I have told you uh, for years. I've um, developed conferences, developed uh, uh, programming seminars on uh, the latest uh, UFO interactions, and um, uh, in some cases, not in America so much, but in Central and South America, there's actually been evidence of contact with off-world beings and uh, either authorities or individuals from these different countries. Uh, it's not as tightly reined in as, as it is in the United States. We have a, a real clamp down or the, or the government, military be it, or, or uh, uh, divisions of uh, uh, security have clamped down on a lot of the reporting here in the United States. Um, there was a very f- famous story of a, of a Mexican physician, this is like 30 years ago, who actually did a... Um, uh, an inspection, an examination of a of an alien who who uh, he met. <laughs> Actually, I might find that article and post it. But um, you know, it, it's uh, it's something to consider. I, I also bring up the fact that Graham Hancock, in his book The Mystery of Mars, as well as many others, believe that there's a connection between Mars and Earth. Graham believes that tens of thousands of years ago there may have been a uh, settlement from Mars of Earth. uh, And the connection is in the pre-dynastic Egyptians. And we see this in his uh, photos of pyramids and even a sphinx. And he compares it to the Giza sphinx and uh, believes strongly that there is something going on. There's compelling evidence and uh, solid analysis by a lot of uh, scientists that Mars is the home to not only a civilization that's long gone, but there could be evidence, and his belief is that there is evidence of uh, a possible civilization or the remains of a civiliza- civilization under uh, underground under the planet. So I look forward to that. Next week, the following two weeks, uh, the Saturday the 20th, Dr. A.V. Loeb, and then uh, we conclude the month with Richard Hoagland on the 27th in a two-part program, The Monuments of Mars and the details of what he's come up with with his scientific group on uh, what we can expect uh, when the uh, cat's let out of the bag. (laughs) And what that means is that that there's going to be overwhelming evidence uh, that's gonna that's gonna come up, uh, and we don't know how NASA JPL tackles this, how they provide reasons for not divulging this thirty years ago when they started scanning the planet, uh, specifically the Cydonia region, and discovered the face on Mars, the various pyramidal structures, the buildings, and uh, so forth and so on. If you remember. Or if you can recollect when we had Dr. John Brandenburg on the program, author of Death on Mars, one of the big giveaways is that there's a, a, a signature uh, from or an isotope 
that is the result of a nuclear or a massive nuclear explosion on the planet. And uh, when he revealed this quite openly, NASA didn't look favorably on him. And (laughs) he was relegated to uh, work for a, a while in a California company. It was I couldn't get a hold of him for a while. He's back on the scene now, so uh, we'll see what happens. We may have him back uh, once we get more information on what is discovered on the planet. But these are all events that are leading up to what I believe is some form of disclosure. First of all, we have the um, the Navy, the Pentagon releasing information on uh, Navy interactions with UFOs. We have the uh, the Mars missions that are going on. Uh, and then we have the ongoing uh, belief that planet Earth is being visited uh, and has been visited for perhaps thousands and thousands of years. So we, we uh, at least I am prepared for this disclosure and it's time to shift our awareness and, and, and uh, be welcomed into uh, a organized uh, group of uh, civilizations or some form of uh, association with our neighbors. As odd as that sounds, it's exciting simply because this is what we can look forward to in the future. And this is how we evolve. So uh, fantastic. Lots to look forward to. And uh, let's hope that both the Chinese and the Arabs, as well as our United States, NASA, JPL, are successful in their missions. So we get to know what's happening on the surface and uh, the planet of Mars. Hey, this week, the guest is uh, Teresa Cross. She is an expert on the ancient Druids. We're going to talk about the Druids and where they came from, their association with the Hindus and other very ancient cultures, and their level of knowledge. We only know a little bit about them from the writings of Julius Caesar, and the Romans were somewhat intimidated by them and also uh, bothered by them and, and didn't take the Druids lightly. They actually were not happy with them. So uh, we hear about the the um, stories of the Druids through Julius Caesar, but Teresa Cross, the author of Secrets of the Druids, uh, is the guest today, and uh, we're going to get a a deep dive into just who these people were, who she believes were uh, the megalithic builders of the ancients, and had a lot of knowledge probably handed down to them from their forebearers who were pre-Diluvians, so interesting uh, program. Hey, I want to mention one thing. I... uh, was in contact with uh, A.V. Lopes, Dr. Lopes' uh, publishing house. We'll have a uh, uh, handful of books to raffle off next week, so stay tuned. Listen closely to that interview, and there will be uh, a question. If you answer it correctly, you could win a book, uh, the book that he has written called The Extraterrestrials. And uh, I just finished it. It's a great read. It really drills down into his thinking, really a fresh look at uh, uh, Earth being contacted uh, or interacting with a uh, 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 an ET race 
in the form of a scout ship, which is what he identified using Earth-based technology, long-range radar, various uh, listening and uh, surveying devices. He is in charge of the uh, a number of observatories and is the head of the astrophysics department at Harvard. So we're going to get it from the top and we're going to hear it. And I have, I have to tell you, I am really, really excited to have him on the program. Uh, we've communicated a little bit here and there. His openness is so refreshing. And I think you'll agree with me when uh, we have him on the program that he is one very rare individual who is unfortunately getting a great deal of slack from his contemporaries. But I think we need this kind of uh, point of view. Uh, we're not the only ones in the universe. So lots of great material coming up and we got a great show for you today. So uh, here we go. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. to Minnesota and check in with uh, archaeologists. That's Jen Dale. And uh, this week we are going to Algeria. And uh, there is a petroglyph that is fairly significant. Hey, Jen, how are you? I'm good. How about you, Cliff? I'm doing well. So talk a little bit about this. Uh, I guess she, she's called the Running Horned Woman. Very cool looking uh, design. Yeah, I'm, I'm super um, excited about this. I've known about this this rock art for quite a long time. So she is located in the Saharan desert, which is basically near the borders of Libya and Niger in Algeria. Okay. Um, she's located in this kind of this out of the way, very hard to access um, Canyon area. It's called Tassili Nahar. 
what makes it interesting, and I just want to remind everybody, when you look at pictures of this place, like it is desolate. It's sand. It's a lot of, you know, cliffs. It doesn't um, look very inviting at all. No, not at all. And just it's, you know, relationship to um, other things in the area. It's extremely remote and probably very, very difficult to get to. What makes it interesting to me is that, you know, we rarely talk about women depicted in rock art, but there's actually a significant amount of women depicted in rock art. Um, mm. This one is specifically really interesting to me because there's motion involved. Now, they call her the running horned woman, but I would actually say she's probably dancing because there are, you know, there are other figures around her that are also um in movement or there's some sort of movement implied. So I think that that's pretty, that's pretty cool. This plateau in general has over 15,000 anthropomorphic figures or human figures and animal pictographs and petroglyphs. Hmm. So there was a lot of activity in here. One of the things that's probably the most interesting about her is that she's she's painted and she's wearing this very elaborate headdress with the horns. Um, again, we rarely get to see that. Oftentimes when we think of someone who's um, a shaman, we think of a man. This woman was, you know, some sort of priestess shaman and likely doing some pretty heavy magic. She's also associated with agriculture. In the horns on the top of the headdress, you can see like something that looks like raindrops coming down or seeds. And that's how it's depicted. There's also the assertion made that this is the preemptive image or how they got to um, Hathor or Isis in Egypt. She Mm. predates those images and you know, Isis was the goddess of agriculture. This is clearly some sort of goddess or priestess of agriculture as well. They believe that this was painted in some sort of a sanctuary based on its location. And again, in, you know, this is about, they dated at six to 4,000 BCE, which is around 7,000 to 8,000 years ago, generally speaking. So that's like Neolithic, the Neolithic timeframe. And if they were going to relate it to a group of people who may have created these um, beautiful images, they say they could possibly be connected with the Kungsan or the Tureg people Mm. who inhabit this region. Now, when you Uh, say magic, is that because she is, uh, I'm looking at a reproduction of the original rock art. Is she sprinkling uh, uh, magic dust on something or what's the magic connotation? Well, I guess I would say, you know, you see the little white things coming from her hands. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know. I would say I would relate that to energy. We even saw that in Egypt. Do you remember that? They'd have oh, yeah. you know, something coming forth from their hand and it Definitely. was seen as, as energy. I would relate it to, you know, even the armbands that she has on her arms. They It looks like when rain comes down, it, it's, you know, supposedly imitating water. Um, the headdress they have like, you know, it could even be like their little seeds coming down and she is the one Im- imbuing them with energy so that they can grow and perpetuate themselves. So oh, I guess you. And then there are a number of people in and around her um, all doing different activities, different things. There's a woman under her, I think it's her left leg um, that has kind of a rainbow going over her head. Again, you know, that, that the, the, um, imagery of rain and what it's like when 
you know, there's a successful harvest happening. So I, I think that there's a lot going on. I would even comment on her body type. I mean, this particular woman looks like she's probably had a child as well. Uh, I think that that's something that's very, very interesting, which is rarely looked at or actually even talked about in rock art. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm looking at the original. It's fairly well preserved. So I guess that dry climate has really kept it uh, as, yeah. well, as much as you can see. What is the size, Jen? I mean, I can't tell how big this thing is. That's a really good question. So it looks like it's about two to three feet tall. Or oh, my God. It's fairly it's fairly Yeah, large. it's, it's fairly big. I think that the other thing that I want to say is, you know, just the body adornment that's also seen in this rock art is really indicative of, you know, a number of things, whether the the woman was painted or she was tattooed or, you know, she was wearing some sort of adornment that she adhered to her body. We We just don't ever necessarily take that into consideration or what that might have looked like. So I, I think that this is a really interesting look into what Neolithic people from this region were were up to and yeah. what they what they were doing. Amazing. What is the what is the uh, composition of the pigment? Is it is it uh I think local that, flowers or something that they crushed or what? No, I think that this is actually I think it's um charcoal and I think I read somewhere like it was um magnesium or some sort of rock that they had broken up. Oh, um, okay. It was a it was a combination of um organic and inorganic pigments that were used together. And so they applied it with uh, a, a rock that cut into the surface of the stone or something. Well, no, this is actually, this probably would have been painted on. Oh, this is a paint. Okay. Yeah, this is a paint. And it was probably painted on with like feathers. And, um, you know, it's funny to think of the objects that they would have used to create rock art. Because if you'll notice, some of the lines are just so beautiful and fine. You would need a feather or some sort of a brush, some sort of like, you know, an animal's tail or something Mm -hmm. like that to create this. It's a really high quality workmanship. The artist is is outstanding. Um, All right. Running Horn Woman. uh, We're going to post this on the Facebook page. Go to Facebook, go to the groups, Earth Ancients. You'll see it there. Uh, A lot of really great photographs automatically will be posted to earthancients.com. And then you, you click on Facebook feed. Any last thoughts on this, Jen? Yeah, at the bottom of the article, I think that there are three or four links to other articles about this particular piece of art. So I I tried to find something. I think one is uh, for Tara, and I know that they they offer like pictograph and petroglyph trips Mm. and excursions and stuff like that in really far off places. But they have beautiful, beautiful photos, and the links are really, really good. Very good. All right, this is a good one. And Thanks, Jen. We'll talk to you next week. See you, Cliff. Of all the boys I've known and I've known some. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Coming to you live from around the world, it's Earth Ancient News. All right, it's time for our science segment. This week we're uh, talking about Aztec crystal skulls and uh, 
Bruce, what do we know about this? Uh, what what is the the decode on this? Apparently, there are a number that are actually fake. Yeah, this is quite an interesting story. You know, I, I've always had an interest in the crystal skulls. I mean, I know you do too. Uh, I remember the first time I saw a picture of one, I think I was about 11 years old, you know, and I'm 43 <laughs> now. Um, and just feeling, you know, that they had that kind of, you know, that mysterious you know, kind of shroud around them. And, they have, you know, what were they? What do they mean? Do they carry information? You know, some people suggest, um, are they truly ancient? And if so, how ancient? You know, it's, there's always been a big mystery around the, the topic crystal skulls. So, I mean, that's why I'm kind of mm-hmm. I'm interested in what they have to say here. And there's a kind of a bit of a deep dive into, the authenticity question. Now, all around the world, there are museums with crystal skulls in their collections. I mean, some of them are on display. Some of them are kept, you know, deep in the basement um, for various reasons. One being the uncertainty over how old they are and whether or not they are, you know, modern kind of, not quite forgeries, but I suppose modern creations, should we say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason why this actually came up as a suspicion is that, Going back into the 1990s, uh, an archaeologist at uh, the Smithsonian National Museum called Jane Walsh, she, she developed some suspicions around some of these so-called Aztec crystal skulls and so began a bit of a, a closer look. And what they found was there was evidence in the proportions of, sort of you know, the, the teeth and the ears and some of the, the, the way the skulls represented that just were out of balance. And, that, you know, if we're talking about, you know, really precise artistry, you know, some of it just seemed off to her that, you know, mm-hmm. this hadn't really been done to the quality level of, of a people that were putting their passion, you know, and their, their greatest artistic work into them. They looked more like they'd been kind of, let's say, sort of cobbled together to sell, you know. Um, and then the more she kind of looked into this, the backstory, it became kind of more suspicious that at least a proportion of these had been machined, you know, using, you know, modern tool kind of technologies rather than um, using ancient methods. And I think in some cases, the claim was using sand and hair for the ancient method. You know, you'd mm-hmm. rub sand into human hair and then rub it on the crystal and really to, to, to smooth it off because crystal shatters. I mean, this is the problem with, if you're working with crystals, certainly large blocks that, you know, you have to be really careful because any flaw in the crystal yeah. cause it to split. Right. Mm-hmm. So, the ancient ways of doing it were quite painstaking. You know, you, you really had to rub the crystal into shape and all kinds of stuff. So there's obviously, you can see the kind of tooling that's been done. Mm-hmm. So this revealed that certainly a number of these were fake. And the, the more they dug into the story, they began to find that there was this strange connection back to one person called Eugene Boban, who had helped in the procuring or the, you know, the, the purchasing of essentially all of the Aztec crystal skulls that had gone into museum collections. So, so you can imagine that raised some suspicions. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm looking at this article and apparently like this guy, this is like the uh, like 1800s, 1834 Boban, who's a Frenchman uh, apparently was uh, excavating. So there must've been some that were actual true artifacts and some that he manufactured do we have an idea of how many were fake well they suggest that the suspicion is that all of the aztec ones were potentially fake because they'd all come through this one person Mm -hmm. that you know essentially if he was running a scam 
then it, it cast dispersion on all of those skulls, which was oh, right. the issue. Yeah, but then, of course, it doesn't definitively tell us whether or not he wasn't procuring some of them from legitimate sites and then also, you know, purchasing some that were modern creations, you know, but it casts that kind of doubt on all of them because he's involved. Then certainly they know that he was supplying some legitimate artifacts, you know, not necessarily skulls, but legitimate artifacts to museums. Mm-hmm. But the fact that some of these skulls, you know, kind of clearly fakes, you know, they've detected the machine work and, you know, all of that, it, it does raise that big question. But I don't think that they're in the position and they, they kind of admit this. They're not in a position to say that they are definitely all fakes because mm-hmm. that, that, that's not really so easy to ascertain. I mean, you need to you'd look back at every single one of them in, in really detailed analysis to prove that they had been, you know, cut using modern drilling technology, well, drilling technologies of the time. So it's still a bit of an open question, but yeah, he, it does seem that there was a potential for him to have taken advantage of the trust that museums had in him as being considered a kind of expert on Aztec archaeology and a supplier of, you know, of archaeological pieces that they wouldn't necessarily have known what they were looking at and what to look for in terms of legitimate crystal work and fakes. And, and that's kind of what this article is kind of talking about. The suspicion it leaves is that he, he was in a position to have really have scammed them, you know, and, and yeah. acted as the expert. Yeah. You know, it's funny. This uh, is an eye opener in some ways because it seems like people are very interested in these crystal skulls. And there's not, a, uh, there seems like there's quite a few around the world. Mm-hmm. Um and here we are with this uh, anthropologist, Walsh, who actually wrote a book called The Man Who Invented Aztec Crystal Skulls, The Adventure of Eugene Boban. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but you have to wonder, you know, uh, there are evidence of, of being fake, you know, poor, poor execution, uh, b- bad design, whatever. And then you mm. go up against the Mitchell Hedges skull, which I've seen. And that thing is very elegant. So uh, she doesn't really talk about that. But this is interesting simply because this guy was pushing these fakes all over the place and um, really makes you think twice about uh, fakes in, in museums, what's real and what's not. How, how do you determine yeah. that? So, Yeah, and I don't think we should limit to – it makes you think that, you know, skulls, okay, because of particular interest, they, you know, someone's taking a look. But how many other artifacts that we assume to be legitimate in these museum collections are just, you know, fakes that were just done at the time when archaeologists maybe didn't have the expertise to scientifically evaluate, you know, whether a piece was genuine. But there must be a whole lot of, of fake artifacts that are still languishing in museums. You know, they purchased during the big sort of gold rush for artifacts from Mesoamerica yeah. that were created. Um, but there is, of course, it does leave you with the other question, though, isn't it? That that because something has evidence of machine working to it, they assume that's a fake. But, you know, if we look at that from the perspective of lost civilizations, I mean, could it be that somebody, you know, did have the technology to do kind of, um, you know, drilling work on it going back thousands of years? And that's something, of course, they won't touch on, you know, because obviously it's a bit out there. But, from our perspective, I think that, you know, we have to be a bit careful in it because, you know, obviously we've seen there's a lot of evidence for uh, all kinds of amazing um, knowledge that's being lost. Um, and so I think that seeing some level of drill work on there doesn't necessarily mean it's modern. 
right? Exactly. So yeah. The mystery, the mystery continues. As far as That's the say. problem with the mindset, the current uh, uh, mindset of ar- uh, archaeologists, anthropologists is that, you know, before a certain period of time, there couldn't have been sophisticated machinery uh, pre-flood. Mm-hmm. So, all right, we're going to post this uh, article on the Facebook page. Go to uh, Facebook, go to uh, Earth Ancients group page. This automatically populates to Earth Ancients Facebook feed. Some really nice photographs in here, including a picture of Eugene himself uh, in front of his uh, archaeological collection. I guess he was selling them back then. And down, He was in Mexico. Uh, any last thoughts on this, Bruce? Uh, just that, um, like you, I, I feel that the Mitchell Hedges skull and some of the others – to me, seem legitimately special and ancient. And that, that's my take for now until someone proves otherwise. Fantastic. All right. Fantastic. Bruce, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Take care. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Stonehenge, we think of the Druids who typically corral around there and, and have ceremony. And other than Stonehenge, uh, I don't know, I don't really know a great deal about the Druids, their history, where they came from. We get a great deal of information about them from Julius Caesar's uh, writings, and it's really the principal source of information. But they're a very secretive group, and I wanted to know more about where they came from, how they influenced uh, a number of uh, cultures. 
And we came across a book called Secrets of the Druids from Indo-European Origins to Modern Practices. And my guest today is Teresa Cross. Now, Teresa is a Celtic uh, scholar, uh, a member of the Celtic Cultural Organizations, and she is also author of The Truth About the Druids and a frequent contributor to the Independent Celt. And so today, we're going to get an inside look at just where these people came from, their influence, and also bringing it into modern times, how they are influencing us today. So, Teresa, welcome to Earth Ancients. Thank you very much. So did did Caesar have it correct about the Druids uh, as a people, what he wrote? Did he pin it pretty well? I mean, that's thousands of years ago, a couple thousand years ago. What, what do we know about the Celtic or the uh, Druids? Excuse me. Well, Julius Caesar wrote a book while he was campaigning in Gaul called Develo Gallico, which in Latin means uh, the the battle or war against the, the Gauls. And Gaul covers what's now France, Belgium, and Switzerland, and particularly France. And uh, in those days, the native tongue was Gaulish, which was a P-Celtic language. And uh, what we have in Ireland and the uh, and Gaelic Scotland was Q-Celtic or Gaelic, Gaelic. But Caesar's writing about the Gauls is pretty accurate even though he is an enemy of them. But there's one thing that most people overlook is that he did have a friend and supporter named Iwikiakos of the Idwi, or Edriwai, if you want to anglicize it. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came, he, uh, not Caesar, but uh, Divisiacus, is he came to Rome in 60 B.C., uh, BCE, and he begged the Roman Senate for assistance against uh, some enemies that were encroaching on their territory. And uh, later, the Idwi were pro-Roman. Not all Gauls were anti-Roman, but they wanted to have sovereignty over their kingdom, their petty kingdom, but they wanted uh, Dorisiacus wanted it protection from Rome mm-hmm. in return for their alliance, but he didn't get it. The Senate turned him down, and Cicero wrote about him and mentioned uh, mentions uh, the Druid Dorisiacus in his speech, saying that he was a Druid and saying that he did know some uh, ways of divination. So we have that. And Caesar ended up uh, executing, capturing and executing Divisiacus's brother, Dumnorix. And Dumnorix wanted to uh, produce a super kingdom, but he, mm. was, uh, uh, he was thwarted from that. And uh, so when Caesar writes... He's writing from the knowledge, and some have accused him of using Posidonian sources. This is, there was a Gaulish, uh, I mean, a, there was a Greek mathematician and philosopher named, uh, by the name of uh, uh, Posidonius, who went and 
Uh, he um, lived among the Gauls and learned about their ways and wrote about it. Unfortunately, his manuscript or any copies of what he wrote did not survive, and it's not extant. But he was quoted by several other Roman source, sources, mm -hmm. and he was pretty accurate in his description. Mm -hmm. One thing about the Romans is that they did have their bias uh, against the Gauls, and some of it was to prove that Gauls were not good at governing themselves, to say, because they had a stratified society. But when we go and compare Irish sources of the early Middle Ages and late Middle Ages that preserve some of, some of the oral tradition, uh, albeit after Christianity, we find a lot of substantiation in Ireland of the of its time with what was going on in Gaul. Um, I'm curious. In your book, you wrote that the uh, Druids were a – they seem to be very highly educated. They were priests, teachers, and judges. Where did they uh, – gained this knowledge? Were they uh, schooled at a young age or did they have uh, different classes where th th this person became an artist, this person became uh, uh, a, a lawyer or a priest? How, how did that work? Because this is what is interesting about your work that I didn't know. Okay. Well, they, they were schooled from an early age and the phenomena uh, fosterage was practiced in Ireland and uh, perhaps perhaps in Gaul and Britain too. But we know for a fact that they did practice this in Ireland. And what they uh, did is they wanted their uh, child educated in a certain way. They would send them to a school. And everything was taught religious mythology like to, in, in preparation to become a druid uh, entangled learning a lot of things and their way of learning was orally they listened and repeated what the teacher said some of it was in verse the other indo-european culture at the other side of the world uh, was the so-called aryans of india and these people brought the Vedas. Uh, the Vedas weren't written down until centuries, centuries later. But they memorized it in a very archaic Sanskrit. And they did their oral teaching in the Brahmanic schools. So uh, priests were trained through a similar proce process to the Druids in the West. And there's a lot of parallels between the Druids and the Brahmins of India. Um, yeah. Uh, one of the things that you uh, also bring up, which also is fascinating, is that you have them settling Central Europe around 4000 BC. Now, are, are you? Did, did, would you say that they originate from a pre-Diluvian uh, culture, or was it more like? Uh, uh, hunters and gatherers who eventually developed a high sense of, uh, of, of culture? Well, the Proto-Indo-European speaking people probably lived in what's now Russian Ukraine 
and north of the Caucasus Mountains, but they spread spread out east and west, and that's yeah, that's about uh, four to five thousand years ago. Mm-hmm. But the Celts developed their language in Central and Western Europe, which came out of Proto-Indo-European. In fact, I can count to 10 in Proto-Indo-European and then count to 10 in Gaulish and Latin. And you can see how they sound, how the numbers 1 through 10 sound uh, based on that. And see how they're not just a language family, but they had a culture to go with it, including mythology and uh, practices of how they lived. the uh, Celts preserved the transhuman uh, practices of uh, raising livestock and having cattle and uh, farming uh, mixed agriculture. And they, I would call them pastoralists, but uh, they weren't pure pastoralists. They also practiced agrarian agrarian society in which. Uh, there were no big cities in um, in uh, Ireland, and up until later, when there were settlements made made cities. But in the early past, it was nearly all rural. Mm-hmm. So when Saint Patrick went there, he knew he knew about it because he had been a slave there. Um, Interesting. That's another thing I wanted to point out. Um, yeah, um, uh, the ob- observers of Celtic society would have noticed straight away they had a stratified society with uh, kings and priests and warriors and food producers. And in fact, that's part of the ideology that was shaped by the Druids that comes from the Indo-Europeans. Okay. Were they patriarchal or matriarchal in their structure? I hate using words like that because they're kind of uh, when when I use the word patriarchal, I'm talking about the attitudes of modern people mm-hmm. being uh, sexist. But when we talk about ancient, when we talk about cultures, we talk about matrilineal and patrilineal, and whereas how do they count their kinship? Mm-hmm. And the Celts had a mix. Uh, the early Indo-Europeans seem to have contributed to that, but we have a mix of some things are uh, are uh, supported by the structure of society, stratified. You had uh, priests and or druids and kings at the top. Then you had the warrior class; they were nobles. And then you had the landed class. And then under them, you had a servile class, kind of like the serfs of later medieval Europe and uh, slavery. Uh, as, as Patrick was a slave and they bought and sold and stole people to be slaves and they raided their neighbors over cattle disputes and land disputes. Mm-hmm. So... Celtic society was not utopian. It wasn't dystopian, but it it compares with India's caste system, 
Mm-hmm. But the Romans yeah. themselves had a stratified society. So. Yeah, we keep we keep talking about the Celts, but I think we need to define the Druids. The Druids came out of the of the Celts, right? It's kind of a sect, would you yeah. say? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a sect. And, and the reason I bring that up is because you you provide a lot of insight into, I think, a fascinating aspect of becoming a Druid, where women and men that were talented in healing, uh, magic and divination uh, were trained to help people to get over illness and uh, emotional problems is what you write. This is new to me. I didn't know that this was an aspect of becoming a Druid, a sacred kind of a priest class, uh, as you call them. Uh, What was the inspiration for, for developing a class of people that were into magic. And what does magic and divination mean? Well, I define magic as trying to manipulate the elements of the universe to do certain things mm-hmm. for the will of the, of the person who's practicing it. You know, the practitioner wants something to occur, but it, it overlaps with the notion of sacrifice to the deities. Um, they could be uh, petitioning their divine, divin- the divinity or deity in question with gifts of offerings. And usually that included sacrifice of animals. Mm-hmm. In times of severity, it could even mean sacrifice of humans. Um, but uh, I define magic as sympathetic magic in which you do something like you want you want something to occur you do something that would make it occur using an analogous homologue you know like uh, something that i would call sympathetic magic is like you want let's say you want to do uh give somebody a love potion so they are attracted to the opposite sex well, the druid would suggest that the potion would have the ingredients to uh, define that, to define that relationship that they want. And yeah, that's sympathetic magic. And another form in the sacrifice themselves, they're doing a mesocosmic, meso- I call it, uh, where the whole village of people and surrounding landowners and uh, gather like at Samhain or gather at Imolk or gather at Lunasa and they uh, sacrifice some animals for prosperity and it depends on which deity you're adoring um, hmm. but uh, uh, divination yeah, I, I want to get into their gods later uh, but it's it's curious uh, and you, you get into, uh, I guess, a select few were able to prophesy. So they were prophets. Uh, would they? Would they? I guess they would be in the council of a of a, uh, a kingdom, or would they call up a druid to to uh, prophesy on uh, an upcoming season? I mean, how did the how did the prophecy work for them? Well. They practiced prophecy like a lot of ancient peoples. Um, 
they would seek inspiration uh, from dreams or from divinating uh, divination and uh, re it's the, the it's the reading of these things like cutting open a, and watching the liver of a of a uh, animal they would uh, section it off and and commit readings from it commit I mean do readings off of what they were looking at Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, uh, the word Vatis, V-A-T-I-S, or uh, Vatis, if you want to make it modern, um, were a class of those who prophesied. And usually prophecies are warnings, just like in Christianity and Judaism, of the Old Testament, the prophets did the same kind of thing. Sometimes they would incubate themselves, sleep uh, on it. And uh, the uh, diviners and soothsayers would chant something over them. We have evidence of that from Irish literary sources. So mm. Fascinating. In the book, you mentioned that uh, women often fought alongside men in battle. And I don't know of very many uh, ancient cultures that, that did that. What, what was the basis of them asking women to fight or were women equals in society? Women were, uh, well, let's first explain, let's go to the word matriarchy and matrilineal. We have cultures that, we can identify that we're matrilineal. In other words, they would count mm -hmm. kinship through the mother's side. Uh, one uh, culture was the Picts has been uh, looked upon as uh, matrilineal, mm -hmm. and, uh, but they have a myth to explain it. The, uh, uh, some ancient Greek tribes practice some match matrilineal things uh and matrilineal means that uh you reckon your kin through your mother's people through that kind of direct line but they did both and normally there's another thing that contributes to uh is polygyny uh celtic chieftains or kings sometimes had wives and concubines so in that sense it, that would be considered a very patri patri patriarchal thing but we we don't find rule by women but we find them retaining uh property and marriage and there were seven different kinds of marriage one of them being um one of them being the uh uh payment of of uh, uh of a of the father of the bride one of them might be abduction one of them might be elopement another one would be this and they were all legally including a hand fasting which it's called today which was being married for a year and a, a day but that was all seen as legal and even after christianity they still practice it that way the old way up until the uh, practically the Reformation period, as the Catholic Church became more dominant, 
uh, over uh, managing the, the bishops and priests. And priests could be married men too. So, but they didn't have uh, they didn't have women priests, but they did have women deacons. And Celtic society was very less patriarchal than Greco-Roman society, especially the Greeks. Mm. So talk a little bit about them uh, uh, fighting in battle alongside men. I, I find that fascinating. We find that in the stories, and we have sculptures showing it, um, some iconography of Gaul and the uh, women learn the art of battling and fighting. And we have the story of who was trained by a woman swordsman in Scotland. And um, as as far as far as I know, that is um, unusual because in Greco-Roman society, they they didn't have women warriors. There was the <laughs> legend of the women women warriors called the Amazons. Well, it turns out they were Scythian warrior women, mm. uh, and Scythians are another uh, Indo-European culture way in Eastern Europe. And they were uh, big on horse horses, and they were good horsemen, and they fought a lot of battles, uh, similarly to to the Celts, but their language was related to old uh, Farsi, Persian. Hmm. Okay, uh, does that does that clarify? Yeah, it does. Uh, one thing I, I do want to get clarification in, and in your book, you re- reference this quite a bit. You um, you find that the uh, Druids, the, the Celts, parallel uh, the ancient uh, Indian or Hindu culture in a lot of different ways. And I'm curious, do you find that the similarities come out of an earlier civilization that influenced those different cultures? Yeah, they're both they're both inheritors of the Proto-Indo-European tradition. Okay. Um, but if and, you were to go further back, if you were to go further back into that, and we were to look at pre-Diluvian cultures that, say, are earlier than historically recorded, um, uh, w- would they go that far back? Well, you know, the the story of the flood is pretty pretty much uh universal, but it, it describes things that would have happened about 10 what, 10,000 years ago. 10,000 uh BC, yeah. Yeah, and uh the Indo-European language and culture kind of s- sprung up north of the Caucasus Mountains and mm-hmm. east and west. But they did have some in Proto-Indo-European itself. They do have some uh, uh, some uh, word vocabulary borrowings from Mesopotamia, and okay. uh, I think one of them might have been chariot and wheels, stuff like that. But that gets a little murky when you get back that far. As like 
when did the Druids actually begin? We don't have any idea when uh, they be a part of Celtic culture, but the word Druid itself comes from the Indo-European root Deru or Dru, which means strong, steady, steadfast, and uh, hard. And um, then the word Wade is from an Indo-European root meaning to see. And uh, when when they developed and got that name, we don't know. It's kind of like Brahman and Flamen among the Roman priesthood, Flaminus. Mm -hmm. And uh, we don't... That hasn't been carried back to Proto-Indo-European. It may be because the culture was separating out into various peoples and wherever they went, they spread their language with them. Yeah. The reason I bring that up is that, that, that they, uh, the Druids appear to have uh, a real drive for education, for the sacred arts, for divination. These are all things that are very advanced uh, for that time period. And now you're bringing up prophecy and magic it's almost like they're a whole different class of of uh, of hominin or human human beings. What do you say about oh. that? Oh, of course they were human beings, and uh, I have no doubt. And the uh, some things they did were considered barbaric by the Greco-Romans, and we would hold them to account of that too, like human sacrifice, prisoners of war, or those who were. Uh, incarcerated for murder. They did not keep prisons and jails, so sometimes they marked those people for sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And uh, But, uh, um, of course, modern-day practitioners of, Druid, of Druidism or Druidry w- would never uh, propose doing bloody sacrifices. Yeah. Although I've heard some neo-pagans doing it, uh, but those are basically Germanic groups who do Alza True or Troth, as they call it. And uh, and we see that uh, the ancient Vedic Aryans who composed all these hymns and composed later the Vedantas and Upanishads and so forth, they had eliminated... Uh, cattle sacrifice and eating meat was rescinded and they made cattle too sacred for uh, for killing and eating and it uh, according to uh, anthropologist Marvin Harris and he says that uh, it became un- uneconomical for them to kill their t- cattle for meat uh, they were very important for uh, uh, fertilizing the soil for the crops so with the Celts, if their religion had continued, it might be kind of like some of the things that happened in later uh, Scottish folklore, uh, where if there was an outbreak of uh, cattle disease, they would can sacrifice some cattle to try to drive off the disease. Mm-hmm. They still had that going on up into the 19th century, so... People wouldn't think about doing that nowadays. Uh, at least I would be shocked if they did. I'm I'm curious. Uh, 
why the the druids didn't write anything down uh it's all memorization and if you present the the parallels between the hindu and the writing of the vedas the verses uh i think the very early verses were not written down and they were memorized isn't that correct yes and so that's another parallel that i find completely fascinating is it is it a possibility that the this group at one time was one culture yeah about 5000 years ago okay i mean f- about 4000 bc 5000 bc somewhere mm-hmm. like more than 5000 years ago uh, 6 7000 years ago <laughs> but at that time they may have been already practicing uh uh pastoralism or transhumans mhm moving out and expanding land as you get uh, a need for more uh, pastures and uh, green earth for the cattle. Um, But I would probably take a big guess here and say that the original priesthood, which uh, other Proto-Indo-Europeans probably existed, but we they were probably kind of like shamans of some uh other cultures mm-hmm. and i wouldn't go so far to say the druids were shamans like some scholars think because Scott, because shamans have a particular technique and it's mm-hmm. techniques of of bringing consciousness into another level so that you can deal with spirits Right. Um, and the spiritual nature of things, uh, supernatural. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about sacrifice because you speak a lot of it in your book. One thing that I found was uh, a, kind of an eye opener is that the ancient definition for sacrifice means make sacred. And yeah. I, f- I found that just fascinating to read. Talk a little bit about the importance of. Uh, what the Druids considered sacrifice in their uh, in their divination and practices. Well, the words in Celtic languages today all derive from a Celtic uh, uh, old Celtic root, and that root is uh, ad advertus, and that comes ibart in modern Irish and. Uh, it becomes Iberth, uh, I think, in Welsh or something like that. And it means offering. Uh, it means to... Uh, also, it meant to, to uh, give, give alms. And uh, because at a sacrifice, they were kind of like big barbecue parties in which... People had their bonfires and they cooked meat that had been sacrificed and they would distribute it and they would do strange things like prepare a bath from the broth of their meat and have uh, a druid a type or waters uh, or a king bathe in it to get blessings of the animals uh the animal's living dynamic, you know. Yeah, I mean, you call them actual uh, sacrificial festivals. 
yeah, where they would have uh, huge parties, and uh, everyone from very wealthy to the the poor would engage in these festivals of of sacrifice. Can, can you talk a little bit more in detail about uh, what they did in these festivals? Yeah, um, well, they probably sung and danced and drank uh, meat or wine or so forth, and uh, and they probably uh, um, made the sacrifice be at the beginning of the ceremony, and there would be somebody who's who's sacrifice or the person who's making the offering, and then you got the druid there uh, as master of ceremonies and various other priests. Uh, actually doing the immolation of the animal and cleaning it and all that. But um, that on my part is a lot of speculation from comparative evidence, plus the archaeology of uh, where they found holes, uh, holes in the ground that were used for pouring libation or blood or whatever. And we find, you know, Teutonic sacrifices similar and the ancient sacrifices of the uh, Hebrews and Jews in the temple are quite similar, too. Uh, it seems to be just kind of a universal human thing, almost, to do sacrifices. I watched a four-and-a-half-hour movie called uh, Shamans of the Blind Country. It actually lasted over four hours to watch it. And you saw the work of the shamans of the... Uh, people of the high Tibetan uh, mountains and um, they it, it, it's pretty exhausting to watch it all but you see them doing a lot of sacrificial acts hmm. they're called shamans but they do do that they do uh, they did do sacrifices a lot of chickens there was a lot of chickens offered and uh they were doing it to heal and so forth too. Hmm. Uh, one of the things that you were able to extract from your research was that these Druids had a, what you call threefold class system. Uh, what is the structure and what was the purpose of that threefold uh, Indo-European? Well, if you want to reduce it down to, the main three items, it's uh, priests, warriors, and food producers oh, in a layer cake of society. That was mobility. You didn't have to be born into the class. You could train and become part of the class instead. Uh, and It didn't harden into a caste system like uh, India did. Okay. And I think it represents the three-part system was discovered by Georges Dumaisel, a Swiss uh, linguist and comparative mythology scholar who rendered uh, the best writings on describing this tripartite ideology, as, as he called it. And it's because we have a beginning, a middle, and an end, or we have... Three things seems to make it good. Uh, like a, a well-formed society has to have its priests, has to have its warriors, had to have its food producers. And under the, under the priests, you also have entertainers like bards and minstrels. 
and they sung praise poems in honor of their heroes. And when you get down to the warrior class, and they're the nobles, and then you get down to the food producers, that's the ones that sustain life through growing the crops and raising the cattle and horses. Mm-hmm. And how, how did they determine where a person went? As, was this uh, determined as a child or did they look into the person's astrology or something and, and decide that they were going to be a warrior or a priest? How, how did they determine this? Well, we don't know for certain, but it would probably be a good guess to say that uh, sometimes it was divinated, sometimes it was, uh, um, sometimes it was just a choice on the child's part or uh, where they wanted to be fostered, and they would be trained according to their foster parent parents. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Fascinating. Julius Caesar writes that it took nearly 20 years to become a Druid. Why, why so long? Well, you start them out when they're young and give them a full education in the culture of which they, in which they, uh, dwell. And they, uh, train them to do the work through an, it's like an apprenticeship and uh, druids themselves, you know, uh, the big secret that I like that people always wonder, what did the druids do during sacrifices? And 
they sat to the side and watched the whole procedure and uh, corrected if any mistakes were made. And, uh, you know, kids who excelled and went all the way up to the top, you know, graduated and became druids. And they were, uh, we have uh, descriptions of the uh, Philae who kind of took over after the druids, um, which came to mean poet, but originally it means seer. And Philioct, or the, the practice and art of poetry, um, was very highly esteemed and it seemed to took the place of the druids when christianity came in mm. um but they were still performing things in a very druidic way for example the feely um the feely would sit to the side and make sure no mistakes were made during the performance of his or her poetry and then the actual person that was doing it was a rhapsodist or singer, chanter. And then you had uh, somebody perhaps playing the harp or the Celtic style lyre. Mm. And I want to pick, I want to bring that up. That's one of the big secrets is what did a druid actually do? Well, it was there to watch and make sure no uh, liturgical or ritual mistakes. He could stop it and have them do it over again. Hmm. You know, I find it fascinating that, that there was education, but there, it's all oral and memorization. You know, I mean, there's no, we have no written documents. How, how does a society survive through uh, just oral tradition? Uh, well, they had to practice and, get it right word per word by rote, you know, and that is difficult. And we don't do that nowadays. We, we have tons of paper and printing and everything, but to find out what the Druids were doing and why is to go back to what their ancestors did and figure that out and see uh, the other Indo-European cultures did the same thing. Uh, writing was very rare, uh, even in literate societies like Rome and uh, Athens and so forth, where a lot of people were educated to write. Uh, not everybody could afford the books because books were very expensive to make. They were scrolls and uh, all those things the common person didn't have access to. Hmm. Yeah, they must have. Uh, uh, it must. They must have been very selective as to who would go into the uh, education or the training to become a druid. Uh, you you had to have obviously very good memorization uh, abilities. What else would be needed to to Would you say uh, intuition would probably be a big one too? Wouldn't you say a good a good memory is is essential? Yeah, um, they probably used mnemonic devices like certain poetic uh techniques but uh see um the uh educators were paid very well to teach so you know they kind of fostered fostered them and 
taught them everything by by uh, memory. They did have Ireland that was formed probably around uh, the time of uh, before, just before Patrick was called Ohm, O-G-A-M or O-G-H-A-M, and you either pronounce it Ohm or you pronounce it Ogham. Hmm. But uh, they were carved onto wooden staves or or uh, uh, stone monuments. Usually you commemorate uh, a person who had passed away. And it's kind of like a grave marker. Yeah. I just find it fascinating that the, the if it wasn't for Julius Caesar's writings and, a, and others, uh, uh, that we would really not know much about the Druids because they have no, no documents. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is that you mentioned megalithic builders. Were they... Did they develop uh, a sense of megalithic construction uh, at some point in their development or uh, or uh, uh, civilization? Well, the latest latest theory about Stonehenge uh, in Salisbury Plain is that it may have been built to amplify, uh, which is an interesting proposition. Uh, and I, uh, uh, but uh, some the there were already Indo-European speaking people in the British Isles when Stonehenge was built. And it's funny though because it seems like uh, you see the uh, current or present day Druids there during the various seasonal changes, the solstices, equinoxes, and uh, uh, other. Um, uh, earthly functions, it's uh, it's like they had a sense of astronomy as well. Yeah. They probably did uh, study the stars for divination and for uh, prognostication or prophecy. Mm-hmm. But Stonehenge is one of those things that we don't have any evidence that the droids used them. And we don't have any evidence that... Um, uh, they built them, but it could have been Proto-Indo-Europeans had already the British Isles and may have contributed to the stone uh, monument, megaliths, and and so forth. Hmm. Uh, as as- are they? Uh, is there other uh, dwellings or stone circles that are attributed to the Druids in uh, the UK, in England, and or in uh, uh, Ireland? Well, they're not attributed to the Druids much these days. Pretty much they've dropped that hypothesis or that theory. Um, and um, But it's still a popular place to gather. And solstices and equinoxes were not revered that much on the Celtic calendar as were Samhain, Emil, Belton, and Lunasa. Uh, Samhain kicks off the year, and they reckon time as night then day, night then day, night then day, instead of day and night. And what I mean by that is that they measured time by the number of nights that had passed. And... So, um, Samhain uh, began the year, then Beltana, uh, uh, Imilk 
is right right around the corner. We just passed it up uh, over a week ago with St. Bridget's Day, or Envolg, as some people call it. And uh, then the next one coming up will be uh, in May, and that's Beltana, or some people pronounce it Beltane. <laughs> and um, then comes Lunasa in August, which is like a agricultural festival of bringing in the crops and so forth. Mm, fascinating. Why did the, uh, uh, the Greco-Roman accounts of the Druids paint them in such a poor light? Uh, I mean, you mentioned in the very beginning of the show that contemporaries of Caesar, Julius Caesar, were very negative uh, uh, towards the Druids. But what, why do you think that they were uh, considered the way they were? Because they controlled the politics and the, uh, uh, the politics among the Gauls, and they advised their leaders on, you know, governing, and they uh, had such a powerful place in society that uh, it was contrary to the Roman uh, being enamored with republic and democracy and having a... But some Gaulish tribes did have, uh, you know, councils of elders, and... uh, they weren't exactly entirely on, um, mon- you know, pro-monarchy, petty monarchies and stuff. Uh, but they wanted to, he wanted to present that uh, Druids controlling society as if they knew they controlled what, what you thought, like a thought police. And then the warriors being the nobles and and then the freemen doing the actual farming and uh, livestock breeding. He wanted to show that stratified society. Ironically, Rome was the stratified society itself. So it was kind of hypocritical, you might say. Hmm. Okay, so... They began to, uh, the, the Druids began to lose favor. They eventually collapsed. I guess you're showing around the 1700s. What was the reason for their collapse? Well, the Druids themselves changed their name to Philae, it looks like, and became the Philiox class. And that means learning and, and teaching people. And a prime teacher was called an olive. O-L-L-A-M-H, and uh, olives uh, were like, in my, even in modern Irish and Scottish Gaelic, the word olive means a professor. And, uh, you know, they did believe in learning and the arts and so forth, and they collapsed because people no longer needed them for sacrifice. The sacrifice on the holy altar was... Uh, the bread and wine of Jesus Christ uh, when Christianity came in and that kind of, uh, they didn't want to, for some reason, they didn't want to call themselves Druids anymore. So they just call it, so they were just feely and and uh, bars kind of disappeared in Ireland as a word. The word bar, they used feely instead, 
Whereas in Scotland, you had both bards and you had uh, some referring to the Druids. But Gaelic culture was at its height in Ulster. And the Ultonians were, were uh, still maintaining a lot of uh, the Celtic ways of life up until the uh, 1600s. And when Elizabeth I and uh, later the plantation of colonies there, I kind of destroyed the entire Gaelic hegemony there. And uh, reminiscent of it are Shanachies who can recite poetry, uh, poetry and lore of genealogies and history. And um, we uh, also had uh, another form of Christianity was practiced there too. They, mm -hmm. they seemed to isolated themselves to some degree, but they were cognizant of the relationship between them and the Scottish Gaels, and they and uh, recognized each other's culture. Hmm. So they, it wasn't a genocide uh, kind of a thing. It was more that their the interest uh, in their ways of life were fading. Uh, and may, maybe there's interbreeding with other cultures that slowly uh, thinned out the, the masses. Is that what you'd suggest? No, I would suggest that it was a genocide. It's especially when you said that a lot of uh, people were killed in these wars. And um, I think the last one was the Battle of Kinsale in 1602 with the O'Neill O'Neill. Uh, dynasty dynasty being uh, destroyed and um, that kind of killed the, the whole thing and then you had James the sixth of Scotland James the first of England making an ulcer plantation of people from Scotland and so forth settling there and then you have uh, lastly Oliver Cromwell Right. Hey, you uh, reference the Freemasons. Is there a connection between the Druids and the other secret societies uh, like Freemasons? Well, at the time that they were about the time they were the English were killing off the Gales of, of Ulster. Ironically, they were rediscovering the, the Druids and from the stone circles and stuff and became antiquarians <laughs> and started reviving Druid orders in the in the place of uh, having much knowledge about them in those days. They one of them came up with the idea that they were Buddhists and uh, another one came up with the idea that they were at the Cayley Day, which survived up to the 1600s that they were uh, secretly Druids and not really Christians. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of crazy ideas came out of that time period all the way up into the 20th century. And so some authors said that 99% of what you would read about the Druids was BS. And, uh, but uh, we have the tools for Celtic reconstruction and because I studied linguistics and mythology and comparative mythology in college while I was getting my English degree, and I just went all bored, crazy, taking courses that I didn't need, but I wanted. I wanted to have that knowledge. 
but uh, it's uh, it's kind of a I think kind of a, a big irony is what happened. Yeah, I mean those sacred arts are are, are uh, hard to come by, and I I think when you in your book you write that uh, people began making up uh, inf- uh, stories and and uh, claiming they were from the dru- druid lineage, so forth and so on. Uh, if they didn't write anything, write anything down, then it's all <laughs> conjecture. Yeah, and we have written sources from early Ireland. And we can use that material, but it's all hinty and very obscure. But you have to go and study Indo-European comparative mythology and linguistics and so forth to kind of get at that stuff, kind of dig for it. Yeah, interesting. Uh, As we close, uh, you talk about a modern practice of Druidism um, where there are certain things like, um, you know, sacrifice and uh, living a certain way. Can you talk a little bit about uh, 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 using these um, systems in a, in a uh, modern practice? I mean, yeah. you can't give it, can't give us a ton of stuff, but kind of give us an overview of how someone would integrate these, these, uh, uh, this theme. That's the part I'm not really sure about how to do, how to design a religion or design something. And I come from a, uh, I practice historical reenactment with a group, but we're practice, we practice from the 16th century, uh, Renaissance period. Um, but uh, in a way, I kind of wrote down that nothing that I put here is in stone. I'm not a guru, uh, a spiritual teacher. I mainly uh, work at it like I'm a historian. And so what is the rituals are provided are based on ancient Vedic rituals that have been uh, modeled after Celtic practices that we know of. Like kings were inaugurated by stepping on a special stone. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, but I mean, are you integrating any of the any of what you learned? Uh, I mean, because magic means a lot of different things to different people. Yes, it can be used as a manifestation tool. It can be used as a wellness tool. Uh, do you have any suggestions in your book for people to utilize any of the uh, hierarchy, for lack of a better word, of the uh, druids? Uh, the druids, yeah. Those- Sadly, there's uh, there's no way we could re- reproduce the society that the Druids uh, created and maintained uh, mm-hmm. through their oral tradition. And we live in a modern world in which we have uh, a modern technological civil- civilization, but to honor them, uh, you could practice what I suggest in there, but nothing that I practice, nothing that I have practiced myself, uh, have I, uh, say that that is the only way mm-hmm. or that's the correct way and everything else is correct. The book's called secrets of the Druids from Indo-European origins to modern practices. Uh, and my guest has been Teresa 
across. What do you want people to get out of this book? Why, why did you write it? It, it took you a while to write it. And what would you like the reader to, to extract? Um, uh, to realize how important the Indo-European origins are and how they shape the ideology of the Celts and other people. And also to uh, dispel some of the misinformation out there about Druids. Fantastic. There's some people with some wild, wild ideas about them. Yeah. So the book's filled with a ton of wild ideas. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's fun. It's kind of a fun read, and you you do incorporate a lot of uh, uh, of of their uh, clothing they wore. Sacred, you call it sacred gear, and uh, all kinds of fascinating uh, aspects. Teresa, thank you very much, and uh, much luck on the book. Thank you. You know, every uh, season, I should say, the equinoxes, the seasonal changes, the uh, current Druid crop, uh, people who are still practicing the Druid way, Celtic way, gather at Stonehenge. You can see them when they're white outfits, uh, <laughs> uh, hoodies, things like that. Um, I don't really know what they're practicing. Uh, if, as Teresa tells us, the uh, guidance, the lessons of the Druids are lost, perhaps they are pulling together bits and pieces of it. You know, when, whenever we talk about mad magic, uh, you have to wonder, where is that coming from? And so I hear different people saying, well, they practice magic and they're pagans and things like that. So anyhow, it's kind of fun to see pictures of uh so-called druids at Stonehenge, um, keeping up some kind of profile. Uh, but it, uh, you have to wonder what they are practicing. Fascinating, fascinating thought. So, hey, um, if you're enjoying Earth Ancients, please consider becoming a subscriber to our Patreon page. For as little as $5 a month, you support the work we do here on Earth Ancients. And it's a Although it's a labor of love, we do have expenses. And when you give us five, ten, fifteen, or twenty dollars, uh, you really help us keep the lights on, keep things moving along. And uh, Jesus, I'll really appreciate it. Twenty twenty was a terrible year for us. Uh, we lost an important intern. Part of the staff had to take off. Uh, it, it's it's it was a real strain, and uh, we're still in the pandemic, so. Uh, things are not quite uh, as they should be. The program, I hope you will agree, is uh, as good as ever. But I would ask you to, if you can, become a subscriber to Patreon. To become a subscriber, go to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Earth Ancients. And uh, you'll see that uh, you have a number of different choices. Members of the uh, Patreon get free ebooks. There are unpublished uh, interviews. And coming soon, uh, you'll be able to listen to each week's program without the commercials. So uh, that's a good benefit right there. So again, please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com forward slash earth ancients. And I want to thank the following people for uh, becoming members so far in the month of February. I want to thank uh, Gary Martin, uh, Melissa Harris, 
Yahushie Sophia or Safai, Rich Harris, and Megan. Hey, you guys rock. I really appreciate you uh, becoming subscribers. And uh, hey, the other thing you can do is you'll see my email there. You can send me an email, say hey, and I'll respond back to you. Really appreciate that. Hey, I want to make the announcement. Uh, we were sold out uh, for our Egyptian tour. That's going to be May 8th through the 30th. We had a few people who have not been able to get clearance in their country. So a few people have, have, have uh, backed out. They can't make it. So if you want to come to Egypt, I will extend the discount. You got to send me an email, though. Cliff at earthancients.com. This is a two- Almost a 2.5, well, let's say it's about two grand discount. 40% is what we're looking at. And this is not going to happen again. So if you want to come to Egypt, May 8th through the 30th, it's a VIP, all exclusive, uh, all inclusive tour. Send me an email at cliff at earthancients.com and uh, we can talk and I'll get you onto that, uh, that discount program. Hey, also, our. Mexico trip is now firm. It is going to be October 7th through the 17th. This is the the Sacred Pyramid Tour uh, of Central Mexico. We land in Mexico City. Uh, We are uh, close to Teotihuacan, uh, Mitla. We go to all the museums. We check out all the ruins in the central area. Then we get on a plane. We go to Oaxaca, Mount Albon, and we're in Oaxaca. We hang out there for a little bit, and uh, and then we see a lot of the sites in that area. It is a cultural and an archaeological uh, tour, and I'm really looking forward to it. It is very, very reasonable. Again, Mexico, October 7th through the 17th. The Earth Ancients Sacred Pyramid Tour. For more information, go to uh, earthancients.com forward slash tours, T-O-U-R-S, and we will have uh, information up for you there probably within the next week or so. We just clarified, confirmed our itinerary, and uh, that information will be up soon. If you can't wait, if you want more information, send me an email, cliff at earthancients.com, and um, I'll make sure that you uh, get the information. All right, remember next week is Dr. A.V. Lowe. Uh, I just got an email from him. He's looking forward to chatting. I am really looking forward to connecting with him and um, getting to know more about his uh, research on this ET craft that flew by uh, Earth a couple of years ago. So that's next week's program, Saturday, February 20th, 2021. All right. I want to thank uh, the crew. Uh, as always, Jen Dale. Thanks to Bruce Fenton in London. As always, our production assistant, Ruth Thomas, and today's guest, Teresa Cross. Uh, Very interesting material. All right, that's it for this week. Take care, be safe, and we'll talk to you next week.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.